I'd like to read this evening as we intimated in the book of Judges and reading in chapter 6. The book of Judges, chapter 6, and reading in verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox, nor ass. Verse 11. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was an Aphra that pertained unto Joash, the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thy mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him, and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. And Gideon went in, and made ready a kid, and on leaven cakes of an ephah of flour, the flesh he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and brought it out unto him under the oak, and presented it. And the angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and lay them upon this rock, and pour out the broth, and he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes and there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Verse 
And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet an Ophra of the Abiezrites. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place, and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him. And so it was because he feared his father's household and the men of the city that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. And then, of course, that raises the opposition and the opposition, too, of the Midianites. Verse 36, And Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor, and if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. And it was so, for he rose up early in the morrow, and thrust the fleece together, and wring the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. And Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for... It was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. We do know that God will add his blessing to the reading of his own good word. This book of Judges that we have read from, I think stands in contrast to the book that precedes it, the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, throughout that book, we hear the sound of victory. The children of Israel, for them the wilderness journey is over. They have crossed the Jordan and they're claiming the promise that God gave them. Every place the sole of their foot would tread, he would give it to them. And we can learn chapter after chapter how city after city would fall to them. And so throughout the book of Joshua there is indeed the sound and the shout of victory. But when we come to this book of Judges, it is not now so much the shout of victory, but throughout this book so often we hear the sobs of defeat. What has went wrong? Instead of Israel going in and possessing the land, what has happened is this. They have settled down with some of the enemies in the land. 
They have copied their ways. And more than that, they have worshipped some of their idols. In a sense, in the book of Judges, it's just as if they were back in the wilderness again. They're going round in a circle. And they're not really making much progress. I want you to notice there are four things that keep repeating themselves in the book of Judges. There is, first of all, rebellion on part of the children of Israel. They are rebelling against the word of God and the ways of God. And then secondly, there is retribution from God. For it is a very solemn lesson in our Bible. God will not allow his people to live in a dishonoring way. And so he will at times raise up an enemy. It is interesting to notice. We noticed last evening that God delivered these people from Egypt. Delivered them from bondage. But you know what we read at the beginning of our passage tonight? God delivered them into the hand of the Midianites. The very God who had delivered them from bondage is now delivering these people into the hand of the enemy. And throughout the book we find that. Sometimes it's the Moabites. Sometimes it might be the Philistines. Here in our passage it's the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east. And it brings the people of God into poverty until there is another truth. And that is the wonderful truth of repentance. For in their plight and difficulty they come in true repentance. Mind you that is a blessed thing. We tell the sinner in the preaching of the gospel that the grounds of blessing is on the basis of repentance. Let me assure you God doesn't have two sets of rules. It is the very same for the saint of God as for the sinner. I did notice in the seven golden lampstands in Revelation 2 and 3 you will notice that out of the seven there are five of those companies called to repent. Mind you, that's quite a number. Five out of seven the risen Christ is calling them to repent. Matter of fact, to some of them he'll say, repent or else. And so it is a blessed thing to see in this book. Repentance on, on, behalf, on, on the half, behalf of the children of Israel. And then we find something else. Restoration. When they come in true repentance, God will raise up a judge to bring the people of God back into the blessing and the bounty that he ever had in mind for them. Well, you say to me, when they're back restored and knowing the blessing of God, they'll never make the same mistake again, surely. But that's the story of the book of Judges. It's only a generation. And they make the very same mistakes all over again. It seems to me that the only thing you and I ever learn from history is that we never learn from history. That is why this book is so much up, up, up to date. We oftentimes feel, as we're reading them, that we too are just making the same mistakes as generations before us. And so that is what we find repeatedly in this book. 
of Judges. But I want you to notice, in this chapter, when the Midianites come in, the children of Israel are greatly impoverished. You notice that they sowed, but they never reaped. The enemy came in, and they didn't reap. The enemy came in just to spoil what had been sown. And so the children of Israel, they're leaving, they're living in dens and, and in caves, in abject poverty. But I want to speak to you tonight, particularly about Gideon, the man that God would raise up in such a difficult day. I want you to notice Gideon with a fourfold exercise. I want you to notice, first of all, he has an exercise to preserve something for himself. That's how we find him, first of all. He's threshing wheat in the wine press that he might hide it from the Midianites. So, number one, he has an exercise to preserve something for himself. Number two, we will notice that he has an exercise to present something unto God. We will see that at the rock. He has something to bring out and present to God. And then thirdly, we will notice he has a desire to put up something for the honour of God in his own home. So he will build an altar. And then we'll notice at the end of the chapter, he has a desire to prove that God is with him. We'll discover that in relation to the fleece. First of all, an exercise to preserve something for himself. We find him threshing wheat in the wine press. You will notice that he's busily engaged. And I would make it very clear tonight that every person in our Bible that God would take up and use, you'll notice they were busily engaged before the call of God came. We could think of a Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, when he heard the call of God at the burning bush, you will notice that he was feeding the flock. He was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. We, we could think of Elisha in First Kings in chapter 19. When the mantle of prophetic office fell upon him, what was he doing? Out plowing. You know, the rain had just come. He was seizing the opportunity, out plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he with the twelve. We could think of Amos, the gatherer of sycamore fruit. And when we come into the New Testament, we could think of a Peter and an Andrew. What were they doing? Casting the net. We could think of James and John. There they were, mending their, their nets. We could think of a Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. But everyone was busily engaged. You know, God has no time in his service for slothfulness or for laziness. It has been said often, if you want anything done, ask a busy person. That's true, you know. And you'll notice that this man is busily Engage. What's he doing? Threshing wheat. In other words, he's getting food for himself. I would like to lift that into the spiritual realm. 
I trust that you and I, as the people of God, are seeking to get food for our own soul. We need to do that. You know, we read of that young lad, that young man, in Luke chapter 15. We call him the prodigal son. You remember what was said of him? He would fain have filled his belly with a husk that the swine did eat. You know, the world is full of empty husks. But you're not put on any spiritual weight. You'll find no spiritual nourishment in the empty husks of the world. What a day it was when he got back to the father. And he discovered, my, there's a fatted calf to be enjoyed. And there's the father's table. They're waiting for him. Oh, how very sad. When we're feeding just upon what the world has to offer. How good it is to know something of threshing wheat. Busily engaged. I was thinking today of the words of Paul to his son Timothy in the faith. He spoke about him as a workman. A work. See, it's all work. The reading of your Bible, the study of the Word of God, it certainly is all work. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. And so this man, he's thrashing wheat. By the wine press, you know, as I've been reading through my Bible, I have noticed there are many links with the bread and wine. I think this is one, one of them. Thrashing wheat, that's the bread. By the wine press, that's the wine. And in the spiritual realm, here is a man, my Isn't Christ the very finest of the wheat? I tell you he is. I trust that in our working out of the word of God, and our reading of it, and our study of it, we are looking for Christ and finding in him the very finest of the wheat. I want you to notice that heaven was observing this. And heaven says to him, God says to him, Addresses him as a mighty man of valor. A man of valor? A man of courage? Well, at this very point, Gideon hasn't lifted a sword. We, we, we would say, he hadn't fired a shot. And yet heaven recognizes him as a mighty man of valor. You you see, heaven can see potential. I trust we can too. Because there will always be potential in a man or a woman who's taken time to study the word of God. I I notice this word valor is the very same word as we find in the next book, the book of Ruth. You'll notice in that book there is a man by the name of Boaz. And he's called a mighty man of wealth. Where did Gideon get all this wealth from? Well, where are true riches found? Are they not found in this blessed book? In the word of God? You know, the risen Christ could say to those at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, I counsel thee to buy of me gold, 
trade in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. What a message then for this young man to hear. The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Where should get in? If the Lord is with us, you'll notice that. God said the Lord is with thee, singular. Says Gideon, if, if the Lord is with us, you, you see, he's not only thinking about himself, he's thinking of others. He said if the Lord is with us, then why then has all this befallen us? That was a good question, you know. And is that not a good question for each of us tonight? We would claim that the Lord is with us. Then I ask you, my brother, my sister, why have we not made greater advances in the things of God? Why is the work of God not progressing in a, a different way? Why are we not making greater strides in, in divine things? Well, my Gideon asked this question. Why has, why has all this befallen us? Why are we in the sorry state that we're in? And he says, where be all these miracles that our fathers have told us about? We've heard about better days. We've heard about days when God was moving in a mighty way. And his hand was seen in the ingathering of souls. And assemblies being built up. What if it, if it was like that in the past? Why not now? Our God hasn't changed, you know. It says the Lord looked upon him. I like that, you know. I don't think it was a look of scorn. I don't think it was a look of reproof. I think it was a look of tender compassion. God had feelings for him. God could read his heart. He says, go in this thy might. And thou shalt deliver Israel out of the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? Go in this thy might. Was he going to get extra might? No, no. He had got it all already. And let me emphasize the fact. He would got it all. In the wine press, threshing the wheat. But I, I want you to notice, Gideon says, wherewithal shall I deliver Israel? My family is poor in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my father's house. Any commentary I have read on Gideon, they, they suggest that this was a plus feature. That Gideon was just taken humble, low ground. I'm not too sure about that now. I noticed the revised version, and Mr. Darby's translation puts it like this My family is the poorest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Well, tell me, was his family the poorest in Manasseh? I doubt that very much. 
Most of them, as we have noticed already, were living in dens and caves. You'll discover that this man, he's in, he's exhorted to take the second bullock. So they must have had at least two. And you'll notice that he takes ten men of his servants. Imagine, ten, at least ten servants in the house. I don't think he was in so poor a way of going, you know. I think he was just trying to make an excuse. And don't forget that excuses are really the first cousins of lies. My family's the poorest in, in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. What was he saying? You can call someone else, but not me. Let me say this evening in this meeting, I judge that the work of God has suffered more through little I than big I. What I mean is this. If you have inflated ideas about yourself, God can prick your bubble overnight. It'll not take him long to bring you down. You know, it's in the next chapter when he goes down to hear the dream. If he had any big thoughts about himself, <laughs> he wouldn't have too much after the dream he heard. Well, what does a man hear in, or, or see in his dream? He learns about just a barley cake tumbling down in, 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 into the camp. And Gideon has to learn he's only a barley cake. Ah, but I tell you, a barley cake in the hand of God is a mighty thing. But you see, little lies are more subtle thing. Oh, surely you wouldn't expect me me to do to do that. Oh no, no. There's somebody else far, far more fitted than I, I am. Let me say to you this evening, if God has put something in your heart and the brethren have confidence in, in you to ask you, don't be hiding behind this little eye thing. You'll have to give an account of that in a day to come. My family's the poorest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. What a reply he got. Surely the Lord will be with with you. And thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. What more does he need? The presence of God with him. I think of the great commission in Matthew 28. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. But now I want you to notice, Gideon has a second exercise. It is now to present something unto God. And he asked the Lord that the Lord would wait. That he might bring him out as present. You notice that Gideon can go into the house. And he has a kid. And he has those unleavened cakes. And he has the broth. You see, this man who has been preserving food for himself has now something to present unto God. And God says he will wait. I think that's a very precious thing. 
The God of heaven is longing that you and I as his people will have something to present to him. I think of the statement of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 4. The Father seeketh such to worship him. You'll notice, dear child of God, God doesn't demand worship. God doesn't command us to worship. But the God of heaven longs for worship. He will not get it from the ungodly. He cannot. He can only get it from his own. I think we have a lovely picture of that in the story of David. One day, David longed. What did he long for? A drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem. In the position that he was in, he could well have demanded it. He could well have commanded his men to bring it. But it was just the longing of his heart. And there were men near enough to David to appreciate what he longed for. And at tremendous cost and risk, they broke through the enemy lines and brought into the presence of David the longing of his heart. I'm thinking now and making an application to the Lord's Day morning. I trust that we are bringing to our God something that he longs for. And that's the worship of redeemed hearts. I say again, Gideon has something to bring out. And, and what a variety he has to bring. The kid, I think, was for a peace offering. The unleavened cakes, that was for a meal offering. The broth was for a drink offering. And he's exhorted to put it all in the rock. There are three different words for rock in this very chapter. But this word is the elevated rock. And we thought of that low bedrock last evening. Christ in humiliation. And we thought of the exalted rock. Christ in his exaltation. So it is here. How wonderful, dear child of God. That what we bring into the presence of God. In thanksgiving and in worship. Can all be accepted. In the value of that exalted man. Oh how many glimpses of Christ in this chapter there are. He is indeed as we have said the finest of the wheat. He is the answer to the kid and the unleavened cakes. He is the exalted rock. I want to encourage you this evening. How good to appreciate that what we bring paltry though it may be. It is all accepted in the acceptability of the risen Christ. To all our prayers and praises, Christ adds his sweet perfume and love the censer raises their odours to consume. It just comes to my mind. A young chap in Scotland and Lanarkshire 
one Thursday evening in a prayer meeting, got up to pray. He kind of stammered and stuttered his way through at times during the meeting, during the prayer. The way going out, one sister turned to another. She said, that was an awful prayer that, that Alec said tonight. There was an older brother just overheard what she said. He tapped her on the shoulder. He said, my dear sister, when that prayer reached the throne, it reached it in the revised version. It's good to appreciate that, you know. I say that for the encouragement of my brethren that take part in public. You know, sometimes when we stand up to take part, thoughts that we had in our mind that take wings and fly, and when we sit down, we feel, well, you know, I just didn't express that the way I would have liked. My brother, let me say to you, if you heard that on the other side, you would hardly recognize it. How wonderful to present it all, as it were, in the value of the exalted Christ in heaven, to put it all, as it were, on the rock. You'll notice that the angel put forth his staff and touched the cake and the unleavened cake. And fire ascended out of the rock, said the psalmist, while I was musing. The fire burned, then spoke I with my lips. It was all acceptable to the God of heaven. You notice that Gideon appreciates now. He has been in the very presence of God. And God has accepted his presence. God has accepted what he has brought out. And so he builds an altar. And he calls it Jehovah Shalom. The Lord send peace. That's what he longed for. In the midst of such perplexity and problems and poverty, he longs that God would send peace. You know, God didn't keep him waiting long. That very same night, God speaks to him again and gives him instruction. What, is, what has, has he to do now? Pull down the altar of Baal that is in his father's home and the grove beside it. The name Gideon means cut her off. As it were, God is saying, Now, Gideon, I want you to live with the good of your name. I'm going to use you in a mighty way. But I want you to start at home. That, of course, is the most difficult sphere of all. You recall that man in Mark chapter 5, the man of Gadara, that was so wonderfully blessed of the Lord Jesus when the Savior was leaving that land and crossing the sea? That man would have loved to have went with Christ. But said the Savior to him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for you. Of course, the supreme example of that is it not the Son of God Himself? I'm thinking of Luke chapter 4. It says of the Lord Jesus that He stood up in the synagogue of Nazareth where He was brought up. How wonderful! That He could stand up in the very city where He had been brought up. And so Gideon, 
He has to start at home. Take down what is not in keeping with God. Ah, but more than that. Raise up an altar to the glory of God. And then he's exhorted to take the second bullock of seven years old. I think in that I can see another beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus. The second bullock, I think, is a picture of the second man. Said the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, The first man is of the earth earthy. The second is the Lord out of heaven. But you'll notice he's exhorted to take the second bullock of seven years old. Why seven year old? Why not a bullock of four year old? Why not one of eight, eight, eight year old? Why is he exhorted to take the second bullock of seven years old? I judge the answer to that is in the first verse of the chapter. I read that Midian had overrun the land for seven years. In other words, God is teaching us this. That the answer to their problem was there from the very beginning. That bullock was there from the very beginning. You know, Christ is always the answer to all our problems. And particularly Christ and the work of Christ. I noticed that a little time as I was studying that first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. You not mind a little aside for, for a moment? That assembly, there were many, many difficulties and problems. But I did discover this. Paul had one answer to them all. And that was Christ on the cross. You notice in chapter 1, he deals with that sorry problem of, of divisions. What does he say to them? He says, was Paul crucified for you? Of course not. Own your allegiance to the man that went to Calvary. That will save from every division. Chapter 5, there is defilement. So much that it wouldn't even be named among the Gentiles. What's the answer? Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. What's he saying? Judge it all in the light of the cross. When you think of the cross, you understand how God thinks of sin. In chapter 8, he deals with disputings, one with another. What's the answer? Because remember, that's the brother for whom Christ died. That brother that you have a difficulty with. That sister you may have a difficulty with. Remember, the next time you look them in the face, you're looking at one and it cost the blood of Christ to redeem them. That's the one for whom Christ died. Chapter 11. There's disorder at the supper. What does Paul say? He says it's the Lord's death you call to me. Keep in mind Calvary. Chapter 15. There's a doctrinal problem. You notice where Paul started. Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures. In every problem. That raised its head at Corinth. I say again. Paul had one answer. 
as it were. It was the second bullock of seven years old. It was Christ and the cross. I want you now to notice that when this altar of Baal is destroyed and the grove cut and an altar raised up to the glory and honor of God, it does cause the opposition of the enemy. I want you to notice Gideon has another exercise for I want to come to this at the close of the chapter. He wants to prove that God is with him. Even though God has told him that he would be. And so he said to God now I'm going to put out this fleece. And I would like that the Jew would rest upon the fleece. And all the ground round about would be dry. What was he asking for? Well, certainly the nation was dry. The nation was barren. Very little for God. But he longs that the Jew would rest upon him. The Jew in our Bible is the symbol of heaven's blessing. I think of the language of Psalm 133 and 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. My, said the psalmist, it's just like the Jew of heaven. There the Lord commandeth the blessing. And so Gideon is longing that though everything else is dry, he longs that the Jew of heaven would rest upon him. You say, what about the next night? Let me say, if you use the fleece, don't forget to turn it the other way around. The next night, get in and say, I don't want you to be ang- angry, but I'm going to ask one more thing. I would like now that the fleece would be dry and that all around the fleece would be filled with dew. Could I say this evening I judge that a servant of God reaches a tremendous height when he's prepared for that. I think that's where Moses, the servant of God, arrived at one day. After Israel so grievously sinned in relation to the golden calf, God said to Moses, Now Moses, I'm going to blot the whole lot of them out. I'll blot the nation out. And I'll make you the founder of the nation. Moses got into the presence of God. He said, God, if there's going to be any blotting out done, you blot me out. But you bless the people. I think that's exactly what Gideon was prepared for. I'm prepared to be dry. 
as long as the nation will be blessed. I judge that's exactly what Paul was speaking about in Romans chapter 9. He was happy to be accursed from Christ for his brother, his kinsman, according to the flesh. But I have said there are many glimpses of the Saviour in the chapter. Not only is he the finest of the wheat, not only is he the answer to the kid and the leavened, unleavened cakes, not only is he the answer to the, the elevated rock and the second bullock of seven years old, but is he not the fleece? I'm thinking of Isaiah 53. And as the evangelist Philip quoted it in Acts chapter 8, did he not speak about the Saviour as the lamb shorn? He certainly is the fleece. Let me assure you that when he was here, all around was dry. Isaiah 53 tells me, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. The nation was dry. But could I say this carefully? Every day that the blessed Christ of God was in our world, reverently speaking, you could have taken the fleece and wrung it out. And what would you have found? A bowl full of water. The dew of heaven rested upon him in the midst of a barren sea. But let me assure you there was one day different. There was one day when he was prepared to be dry. You say how dry? Psalm 22 tells me. He cried prophetically, My strength is dried up like a puncher, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. He was prepared to be dry, that the dew of heaven and the blessing of God would rest upon all in this very company. I trust we appreciate it. I trust that daily we appreciate what he accomplished and that he did it all. That you and I tonight in this very meeting might know the Jew of resting, the Jew of heaven resting upon us not only tonight but be our happy portion eternal.